Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is a special Side 2 episode of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you with the new VRP Rocks episodes releasing every single Monday. Now, this is a Side 2 episode because I've already interviewed this legend before. Charismatic, a real storyteller, a giant in the world of music, Stuart Copeland. Please do check out that full interview I did with him back on episode 72 of VRP Rocks. Now, I spoke with him this time because of the release of his new book, Stuart Copeland's Police Diaries. He kept a real detailed set of diaries in the years leading up to the police making it big. And this book is a real behind-the-curtains peek into the world of a budding band, a band trying to make it big, a band trying to break, as he details what he'd written all those years ago. There's actual excerpts in the book as well. You can see his handwriting, all his notes, that sort of stuff, and read about all the people that he and the band brushed shoulders with in those early days of the punk movement here in the UK. Plus, the book also comes with a CD of some of those early demos, unreleased early demos, I believe, which makes it even better. And in this interview today, he's going to go through some of those stories from the really early days of the band, how he recruited Sting, how they replaced Henry Padovani with Andy Summers, and what life was like in the late 70s, and all in his own unique charismatic style, of course. Now, quickly before we hear from Stuart, though, I don't often do this, but a bit of a spoiler alert for future guests. The next couple of episodes are going to be crackers and long episodes, too. Drummer Simon Phillips, who has worked with, well, a who's who, basically, of rock stars, he joined me to talk about his amazing career. You're going to hear stories about him working with Jeff Beck and Jack Bruce and Deep Purple and Judas Priest and David Coverdale and Toto and honestly so much more as well. It's an incredible interview. And then there's also Desmond Child. Now, this is on the back of an email from longtime listener and fan of the show, Joey Michaud from Canada. I still don't know if that's how you say your name right, but you'll have to let me know. Anyway, he got in touch a while back asking about perhaps speaking to the guys behind the music, not just the rock stars. And well, who better than Desmond Child on that topic than to speak to? Desmond wrote or co-wrote hits like I Was Made For Loving You by Kiss, Living On A Prayer, You Give Love A Bad Name, Keep The Faith and More For Bon Jovi. He wrote Poison and, and things like that for Alice Cooper, Hate Myself For Loving You for Joan Jett, a host of tracks with Aerosmith like Dude Looks Like A Lady Angel and more. And we talk all about those tracks and the artist too, so it's another brilliant interview that you don't want to miss. Again, make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so that you get those episodes which are going to be released over the next couple of Mondays. Anyway, back to Stuart Copeland then. And as I said, his new book, Stuart Copeland's Police Diaries, it's out now. It's a really fascinating look into the life of the police before they were all conquering superstars, before the bazillion album sales, back when they were trying to be punks. And as it's taken from actual diaries that you get to see, you can be pretty sure that what is said is legit. It's not just kind of what some rock star can still remember decades after the heady days of excess and everything else. Again, a quick reminder, check out the full interview I did with Stuart a little while ago, episode 72, to hear that one in full. So here you go. Here's my 20 minutes with the legend that is Stuart Copeland. We've got you on because you've got a brand new book out. It's a really, really interesting book. It's not one of these kind of usual tell-alls. It's, it's quite compact. It's, it's within a space of a few years, but there's a real reason for it. And it's, it's because you've got diaries and you've kept these diaries for many, many years. Now, first of all, the diaries themselves, did you keep them? Well, you obviously kept them safe, but did you, did you used to look at them or did you just literally lock them away and one day decided to pull them out and see what you could do with them? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I locked them away and pulled them out later. Uh, can you imagine? 
going into the draw. I think I'll read 1979 this afternoon. <laughs> uh, not quite. Um, publisher said, hey, why don't you do a book about the uh, cusp, the transition from hippie to punk, from long hair to short hair, from from marijuana to sniffing glue. Um, I, what, and it's been a subject always of interest to me to what I call the cusp um, between prog and punk. And I was on both sides of that with Curved Air and the police. And I did keep these diaries, which I pulled out and they contain. They're just to tell all as well. By the way, it does tell all. Uh, uh, it's just that we're such clean living band that we haven't got that much to tell. All doesn't add up to very much, um, except that we conquer the world. Indeed. And it's fascinating. But these diaries, they have how much, you know, every gig we played, how much we got paid. How many attended? How well I even gave us reviews. You know, uh, w during the time with Curved Air, I was up at Newcastle and um, a local journalist took us to see the local hot band called Last Exit. Then they had this bass player. <laughs> Wonder who that could be. Um, who just had charisma coming out of every port. And, and he had his own amp hired right there on the spot. Actually, no. It uh, wasn't quite as easy as that. Uh, we were introduced, and I noticed that he could, he, you know, he could play bass really well. I was what I noticed, and he could also sing. And I wanted a three-piece band, and one either the guitarist or the bass player has to sing because I'm breathing too hard, banging stuff. Um, and he could sing and play bass, and had his own band. Um, and oh, okay, there was one more thing, which was this golden shaft, the <laughs> celestial light coming down upon his mighty brow. Uh, that guy was an ace in the hole at first glance. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as, as you mentioned, you, you did struggle a little bit to get hold of his phone number to start with, but when you did and you managed to give him a call, he said two magic words, keep talking. That's right. Well, the the, the question I asked him is, is I'm a colleague from London, and I gave him all my hype. Uh, and um, and uh, But I'm interested in, in just you, not your band. And he said, keep talking, which meant, ha, 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 free agent. All right. Uh, so I kept blabbering at him and, you know, bent his ear with my grandiose schemes and convincing certitudes. And um, it, it so happened that he was planning on coming down to London anyway um, with his wife, bass, amp, dog, and baby Joe. Um, and uh, so one afternoon, I get a call. Oh, it's me. I'm down. You know, that singers have this weird husky voice. All singers do. Uh, probably because they're busy singing all the time. So I'm downstairs in a phone booth. Come on up, says I. And he came up. I thrust a bass into his hand. We switched on two complete strangers. And oh, man, joined at the hit musically. We just found that pocket. We dug deep. We raged high. We surged forward. We hove back subtly. Uh, and we it was just obvious that we were born to play together as the rhythm section. And so that night, I took him down to show him the um, the mark, uh, which was the punk scene, which was just beginning to open up in London. Uh, one of the sex missiles had just used foul language on national <laughs> television. Can yes. I say that on your station? Of course you can. Yeah, go for it. Fuck! Is what he said. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the uh, tabloids exploded with glorious fury. And um, the whole, the, you know, the wheel turned. The next wave came in. Only this time, we'd be on the front of it. 
instead of on the hippie suds on the back end. And so we went down to the Roxy to look at all the minnows that we could devour as sharks. You know, in our shared arrogance, we knew we would eat everybody's lunch. And by the way, these diaries, these diaries are that part of our police adventure. Later on, when we were playing arena stadiums after, you know, one after the other, it got very repetitive. And you all know that story. But the cool part of the story is the starving years when we didn't have message in a bottle. We didn't have every breath you could take. He hadn't, not even Sting knew that he could write those songs. At that time, we were playing my crap fake hook songs, basically bass lines with yelling. And um, somehow stuck together for like about a year before Andy joined. And, you know, Andy discovered us, plucked us from obscurity. And suddenly we had an actual musician in the band, and that's when Stink started writing songs. Wow. You mentioned Andy joining there, because obviously originally you had uh, Henry Paravani, who was your your, drummer, uh, your your guitarist at that point, but he was a good friend of yours, wasn't he? But um, in terms of, of moving him on and bringing Andy in, was it a difficult decision because he was a friend, or were you quite ruthless with that decision? Quite ruthless, but it was a difficult decision, because he was our friend. I mean, he was the life of the party. He was the only pe- member of the band that anybody in London liked. <laughs> All the critics, you know, they spotted Sting and I as being carpetbaggers, but Henry was actually the real thing in his dark glasses and his Corsican uh, charisma. He, he was really charismatic, but he only knew four chords at the time. He, he's actually become quite a good guitarist, but at that time, he was very limited in his vocabulary. Um, so that we had to play within the confines of his four chords, and Sting actually did start trying to write songs there. And I think it was actually very useful, ultimately, because it taught him how to distill his ideas into a much simpler form. I mean, he, previously he'd been writing you know, jazz compositions, which are way too complex. Um, so the punk form and, Andy, and Henry's limitations kind of distilled his musicality. So when he was writing songs, the first ones that he produced were not Message in a Bottle, I mean, they're, they're still pretty good. Message, uh, Visions of the Night and a couple other songs he, he pulled out were pretty good. They're better than my songs, that's for sure. Uh, but they weren't the big hits that you're all familiar with yet until Andy joined with way more than four chords. Huge mo- musical vocabulary. And that's when the police that you're all familiar with, that's when it really began. But we still starved for, another, for the rest of 1978 until finally we went off to America. Indeed. So how did you find Andy then? How did you how did you entice him? How did you lure him into the band? Well, he was the session guitarist on a session that Sting and I were the drummer and bass player on. We were the rhythm section. We were actually a hell of a rhythm section. Everyone wanted us because we had this pocket, this this um, this holy grail of rhythm sections, which is this groove that we, we had with each other. Um, and so in walks this legendary at that time, uh, guitarist Andy Summers, who'd played with everybody on every session, really expensive guy. Um, and we spent the day of playing actual music, which was refreshing at, on one hand, but driving home that night in the car, Sting is seething with musicality. I mean, he he had sublimated it all. He knew the flag of convenience. He knew what our mission was. Okay, I'll be punk and I'll shout all the lyrics and and. Uh, endure the scene because it's a wall that we can climb we can conquer this world i'll do it i'll do it but then we spent the day playing actual music 
Oh, he was that night driving home. He was ranting and raving. You know, Stuart, you know, we got to get rid of Henry. We got to get, hey, we got to get somebody like that. You know, Stuart, you're a better guitarist than Andy. And you're crap, he told me. That gave me pause. <laughs> wow, that was an unexpected accolade. Really? Better than Henry, even though I'm crap? That's something. Uh, anyhow, I, I, I could humor him because I knew we could never afford that guy. Uh, even if he wants to join, he'd last two minutes and then we'd be stuck. And so I didn't think much of it. But what I didn't know at the time was that Andy also had been conniving and scheming and thinking those two guys, crap band, but those two guys, if I was in that band, they'd really be something. So finally, long story short, it's all in the book. The long story is in the book, the short story here on the radio. Um, he volunteered. He said, hey, you, you and that bass player. You've got something, but you need me, and I accept. And thus was the police born. Indeed, indeed. And we talk about the book. I mean, um, it was brilliant just flicking through the time capsules because although it is the story of the police, it's got a lot of kind of your life in the 70s as well in there, laundries in there and things like that and going to the parents for, oh. for Christmas dinner and stuff like that. So it, it is a real oh, time yeah, a capsule. Lot yes, a lot of indeed. Indian meals. A lot of Indian meals. Well, it was the only food worth eating at the time. You know, Indian <laughs> cuisine, English cuisine, and I'm sure Scottish as well, um, up there in the north, uh, has become really good. Uh, the you know, youngsters probably don't remember the wasteland, the culinary wasteland <laughs> that was the British Isles back then, uh, where the only food that was had any substance and any flavor was Indian food. Every high street and every town had a Prince of India or a Koh Noor or a Tandoor Palace or something, which was the best meal in town. And so every one of those is notated in the diaries. But also, this isn't just about the police because we played with all these other groups, you know, the Clash, the Dam, the Electric Chairs, all these groups, the Jam, uh, Generation X. Uh, we, we, we were in and out of clubs with all those bands. So it's their story as well. Yeah. And it does, it, it, it encapsulates everything because you've got right at the very beginning of, of the Roxy Club. I mean, in Covent Garden, you were there that first night to see Generation X. It really is capturing the heart, the start of that real punk movement. Oh, yeah. We, I was there with Sting. You had just come down to the big slope. And as I see Sting of, you know, see all this going on here? This is a wild scene, you know. Worth getting a haircut? <laughs> Absolutely. And he did. <laughs> Nowadays, I've read, you know, of course, I did read Andy's book and Sting's book and Henry's book, too, and my brother Miles' book, who managed the man. Um, and their recollections part ways with mine in a few cases. Um, but I've got the receipts. I've got every <laughs> truck receipt, every rehearsal receipt. Oh, wow. I've got the receipts. Uh, and they're all in the book. But um, they, they sort of describe me as this wild-eyed, fanatic Taliban drummer who is a on the punk mission, which is true. I accept that. But they did cut their hair um, and fly the flag and and uh, join, join the team. I mean, they were right in there with me. They were not as fanatic as I was. I was the fanatic of the band because I knew that was the mission. I liked because I could care less. Um, and then when Andy joined, we actually started to write decent music, which allowed us to escape from that and, and jump out of that carpet bag into a world of actual music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what was it like going through the diaries then to, to compile the book? I mean, when you're looking at them, are you, are you feeling waves of nostalgia? Is it is it a nice feeling when you're looking yeah. back? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I'm full of admiration for that youngster, how hard we worked. You know, in Curved Air, uh, which was the previous band, we had three roadies, light show, PA, trucks, uh, record company backing, all going on, salary. Um, in Police, we had none of that. I was the record company. The record company was me on the phone selling boxes of records to Aberdeen's record store, you know. And um, we didn't have any crew. The crew was us three guys on either end of an amp. Uh, we didn't have any of that stuff. So it was a struggle. And looking back on these diaries, it reminded me of how hard we worked and what a struggle it was. And by the way, it was still a struggle when we started to succeed and when we climbed up the mountain and we're climbing up to the higher reaches of the mountain. Soon we leave the tree line behind and we're still going up. We still work real hard. We wanted to be the coolest band and play the best music, and we were desperate to do that. And even when we got rich and famous, we were still desperate for more until we decided, okay, we got enough, and we quit. <laughs> and you went out on top. I think I spoke to you about this last time as well, the fact that every album you released got bigger and bigger and bigger until the point where you broke up, and there's not many bands that I can think of at all that have done that. Yeah, very few bands never saw the other side of the parabola, you know, the inevitable yeah. descent the back to the real yeah. world. Uh, we somehow escaped that. My descent back to the real world, personally, was that I got a job where being a rock star didn't help. That job was film composer. And I spent the next 20 years as a hired gun professional film composer. Uh, I had to hide my leather pants and antisocial clothing and be of just a regular guy because nobody wants you know a director doesn't want to hire a rock star he wants to hire somebody who'll do his bidding and that was me for 20 years and i and that boy the film composer is not even an artist but he has the more chops musically than any other form of musician because he has to and i did a great benefit from the harsh yoke of cruel employ <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in terms of the book itself, it, it comes with a fascinating CD of kind of unreleased demo recordings and things like that. So again, what was that like listening back to those things? Uh, I was impressed. Uh, I was pretty good at guitar, you know. Uh, these are these are recordings I did of the original Police songs, eventually Clark Kent's songs, um, and they remind my guitar with my Revox A77. Uh, and I could sort of overdub and makeshift fashion and create these tracks. And, um, you know, I was pretty good. I could have been in the remotes. You know, I could have been in a remote, except that one track I discovered uh, became a police song on a later album called um, It's All Right For You. And the guitar playing on my demo is exactly the same sound, the same feel, clearly the same guitar and amp. Damn, I remember now. Those lazy some of the bitches, they said, okay, not bad, not bad, okay, sure. But you go ahead and record the track, guitar, bass, and drums, that's me. You know, screw the remotes. For one afternoon, I was a guitarist in the police. And uh, then Andy played a proper guitar solo on the top, and Sting wrote a lyric, and hey, presto, it's a police song, but hey, check out that guitarist. And bass, too, by the way. Wow. There you go. Multi-talented indeed. Uh, and also within the book there, you've got the pictures and everything in like that. And there's a, a nice who's who section as well, which gives you lots of information about all the characters that you passed and, and met along the way. Well, they're just referred to in the diary and you go, wait a minute, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? So there's a place in the book where you can check all these references. 
So you never, you know who you're, you know who you're partying with at all times. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a fascinating book. As I said, it's, it details the early days of the police. It's seventy six to seventy nine, I think it is, and and it's just really compact. and And like you said, it's got the actual like illustration pictures and things like that from the the diaries themselves, so people can see just what you did write and and your your even your handwriting and things like that. So it is the oh, legitimate yeah, real thing. <laughs> yeah, bad spelling, crap doodles. Uh, wrong account. I'm like, some of the accounts are in there. Do not add those numbers up. <laughs> uh, better at banging stuff than arithmetic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and just one other story I'd like to ask you about is an interesting one I heard you, t- you tell once. Um, and it was about you guys um, wanting to get George Martin along to help you uh, in the studio one time. And, and you and Sting uh, persuaded Andy to go along to speak to him and, and see if he'd come uh, and help you. Uh, that's not in my this book. No, <laughs> uh, because that's when we were rich and famous, recording on such places as Montserrat. We could have the temerity to approach a, uh, a legend such as George Martin to ask him for help. But yes, uh, story not in the book, but I'll tell you anyway. Screw it. Um, we were at each other's throats on Montserrat, just not moving forward. We had such conflict. We now understand what that conflict was all about, and it was for good, honest reasons. But the conflict had a stop dead in the water. And we were just stuck there. So Andy, we sent Andy, go talk to George, see if he can give us a magic bullet, come over and produce us and basically be the referee uh, so that we can move forward. And um, so Andy trudged down the hill, over the river, up the other hill to to uh, George Martin's house, who makes him a cup of tea and listens patiently to Andy's sorry tale. And he says, well... You are three very talented musicians, and I'm sure you'll work it out. Um, and Andy, fortified by this excellent advice, uh, you know, he cleverly declined jumping into that maelstrom. Um, and uh, so Andy came back and says, "We can do it." And we all look at each other and say, "We can." Oh, okay. Uh, what's that song we're working on? Synchronicity. Okay, let's do that. Uh, and so we did, and we finished the album, but through the miracle of George Martin's excellent wisdom. Saying no. So there you go. Anyway, Stuart, it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure chatting with you once more. Um, just give us one more little plug for your book. And, uh, I, I know we've talked about it already, but give us a, one more plug. Give us another selling point. Go on. Another selling point. Uh, well, the book is a story of struggle. And like any of those books that you read about, climbing Everest and most of the people died and or some guy stuck at sea for 47 days. It's a story of struggle, but it does get very cheerful. There you go. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again, Stuart. Best of luck for the future and uh, uh, hopefully catch up with you again in the future as well. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening. There you go, the brilliant Stuart Copeland there. I hope you enjoyed that. Check out the full interview on episode 72 of VRP Rocks and make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app of choice because the next few episodes are going to be brilliant. So many great rock stories for you to enjoy. Anyway, that's it for me and this week's episode then. Thanks again for listening. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It really does make a big difference. Check out the VRP Rocks YouTube channel as well. Give us a like or follow or subscribe on the social media channels. Again, just search for VRP Rocks rocks you can find us anywhere a big thank you to everybody who interacts every single week with me so until next week then and a brilliant episode take care
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 